Good afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Outer and Lower Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. In this week's edition, Beth Dunn has an update on the National Park Service request for proposals to lease dune shacks in the Peaked Hill Bars Historic District, and we've got a story about a new town manager in Orleans. Will David is here with his exclusive WOMR Weekend Weather Outlook, and Ira Wood has a matter of opinion that June is the month for love. The collapse of a section of sewer line on Main Street in Chatham resulted in the closure of a portion of Main Street and the disruption of some business for several days last week. Pedestrians continued to have access to the section of Main Street between Cross Street and Chatham Bars Avenue, but the traffic closure and presence of heavy construction equipment impacted business significantly. The collapsed sewer main occurred right outside Chatham Fine Arts, across from the Chatham Squire at 487 Main Street, and affected business on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. The same section of road was closed again for several hours Saturday because of a leak that developed where the new pipe was attached to the old one. Town officials were aware of the age and poor condition of the sewer line in that area. They had planned to replace that section of the sewer main for a long time, but had to postpone the work when COVID hit. This week's incident is likely to accelerate those plans. Shops in the closed section of Main Street say they saw business drop considerably on Wednesday, Thursday, and most of Friday. The break even forced the Chatham Squire to close for about a day and a half. The National Park Service has yet to respond to Provincetown and Truro, whose select boards have both asked for the suspension of the current request for proposals from bidders on 10-year leases for eight of the 18 dune shacks in the Peaked Hill Bars Historic District. Both towns have said that the RFP does not align with the Dune Shack Historic District Preservation and Use Plan, of 2012. The boards also requested a joint meeting with the Park Service and the Massachusetts Historical Commission. The RFP has a July 3rd deadline, at which point the agency is free to begin awarding leases. The Massachusetts Historical Commission is one of two agencies that has official powers of inquiry regarding Park Service activities in National Historic Districts, which are regulated by the National Historic Preservation Act. Under that law, both the Commission and the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation have formal roles to play. The Advisory Council is an independent federal agency that can determine if the terms of an agreement are not being carried out, which would require the Park Service to draft an entirely new historic resource preservation plan from scratch. The Advisory Council and the Executive Director of the State Historical Commission each have the power to dispute whether Park Service actions have upheld their obligations under the law. 
When such a dispute is lodged, according to federal regulations, all work that is the subject of the dispute will stop until the dispute is resolved. In other words, those agencies have the power to force the Park Service to account for how its RFP is consistent with its written preservation and use plan of 2012. Those who object to the current RFP say it differs from that plan in at least four areas. Leasing selection criteria, seasonal use restrictions, the length of leases offered, and the ability for applicants to offer rent above market rate prices. Park Service officials have said that the process is following the preservation and use plan. When questioned by reporters from the Provincetown Independent, representatives for Senator Ed Markey said that his office has been in touch with the National Park Service and has asked that the Park Service respond to the concerns raised by Provincetown and Truro as soon as possible. Representatives of the Advisory Council and the Massachusetts Historical Commission declined to speculate on whether those agencies would take action on the issue. According to the Dispute Resolution Clause in the 2008 Nationwide Programmatic Agreement, a sufficiently strong objection from either agency could stop the RFP program from moving forward until its effects on the Dune Shacks Historic District have been resolved. That is exactly what the select boards of Provincetown and Truro have requested. Sunday School, with ice cream parlors in Harwichport and Dennisport, has been sold to some people who are very familiar with the business. The new owners are former employees, Michael Kelly and Rob DeMarco. DeMarco and Kelly are business partners in Campanelli Companies, a commercial real estate, development, and management firm based in Braintree. Kelly grew up in Dennisport, just a few doors down from the original Sunday School location, and started working there in 1981 at the age of 14. Former owners Paul and Andrea Andres decided to sell Sunday School last January. When Kelly and DeMarco learned the business was on the market, they called Michelle White, who managed the business, to ask if she had any interest in becoming a partner. White said she thought about things for about a day before deciding to get in on the deal. White has worked for the Andres family for 43 years, serving as a manager since she was 20 years old. On May 25th, the former employees purchased the company started by the Andres family in Dennisport in 1976. As the demand for Sunday School's premium ice cream grew, a second location in Harwichport opened in May 1998. The Andres family then opened a third operation in East Orleans, which was sold a few years ago. The business has continued to grow through the sale of prepackaged quarts of ice cream in locations like Ring Brothers Market in South Dennis and the Dennis Public Market. Kelly said they may add a few flavors, but they do not have any immediate plans for radical change. The new owners could expand to new locations in the future if the opportunity presents itself. Kelly added that they will also consider expanding the wholesale side of the business. Celebrating its 25th anniversary, the Provincetown International Film Festival takes place next week from June 14th through the 18th with more than 80 American and international independent narrative, documentary, and animated features and shorts, as well as two dozen panel discussions, 
book signings, parties, and special events. This year's honorees include Bruce LaBruce for Filmmaker on the Edge, Billy Porter for Excellence in Acting, and Julio Torres and Megan Stalter as New Wave Talent. Provincetown's resident artist John Waters will interview LaBruce, who will be in town to receive his award. You can visit provincetownfilm.org to see the whole schedule and to buy tickets. There are a number of local entries in this year's festival, including one by Provincetown Gallery owner Arthur Egley. Egley's film, Art Thief, tells the story of an alternate theory about one of the most famous unsolved art heists in history. The empty frames at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston led Egley to question the conclusions made by the police, the FBI, and other experts. So he wanted to make a film about what happened to the art, what happened to the thieves, and what led up to the crime. The film was shot almost entirely in Provincetown and other locations on Cape Cod, with the Cultural Center in South Yarmouth standing in for the Gardner Museum. The score was also recorded in the studio at the Cultural Center. The film stars Max Deacon and Jacqueline Emerson and will be shown at Provincetown Town Hall at 1.30 p.m. Thursday, June 15th. To find out everything you need to know about the Provincetown International Film Festival, you can visit provincetownfilm.org. For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn. A Truro man pleaded guilty Thursday in federal court in Boston to illegally selling more than 20 guns on Cape Cod. James McNulty pleaded guilty to one count of dealing in firearms without a license. He's scheduled to be sentenced on September 11th. Federal investigators said McNulty sold at least 23 guns that didn't belong to him from January to April of 2021. McNulty personally sold the firearms for cash to individuals from his Truro residence. He doesn't have a license to import, manufacture, or deal firearms. McNulty's lawyer told the Cape Cod Times that the plea agreement, in which the government has agreed to ask for a non-custodial sentence, reflects some of the unusual and mitigating circumstances surrounding the offense. McNulty was arrested in February of last year. The charge of dealing in firearms without a license has a sentence of up to five years in prison, three years of supervised release, and a $250,000 fine. The town of Orleans is set to welcome a new face to local government next month. Kimberly Newman will begin work as town manager on July 1st, becoming Orleans' first new town manager in more than 26 years. Newman, who is the current town administrator in Menden, was chosen from a field of four finalists who were interviewed by the select board in April. She will succeed John Kelly, who retired in December from the job he'd held since 1996. A search committee, with the help of consultant Richard White, fielded approximately 30 applications for the town manager position. Prior to being hired in Menden, 
Newman spent four years as city administrator in Linden, Kansas. Local officials are counting on that experience, as well as the fresh perspective of someone from off Cape, to help lead the town through a period of change, marked by a number of issues, including a regional housing crisis. Newman is currently finishing her work in Menden, where she's worked for the past nine years as that town's first administrator. Select Board Chair Michael Herman said he envisions the first step for the new town manager will be familiarizing her with the department heads and other town staff. From there, she'll begin the process of meeting with different town boards and committees and interacting with the public. While Newman has not yet begun to meet with staff, Herman has been communicating with the town's interim administrator, Charles Sumner. Sumner's contract with the town is due to expire at the end of June, and Herman said the town's charter prohibits the select board from extending his contract as administrator any further. The select board is in the process of defining its goals for Newman in her first year, as well as those of other town staff and department heads for fiscal 2024. Herman said that process should be completed in July. In Newman's case, there's an understanding that time will be needed for her to get up to speed with what's happening in Orleans. Her hiring marks a big change after more than 25 years of continuity in the town manager's office, but the select board hopes that with that change can come new opportunities. With someone coming from off Cape to fill the town manager's role, Orleans officials are turning to a familiar face to provide stability in the recreation department through the summer. Judy Wilson, the town's Council on Aging director, worked with interim town administrator Charles Sumner in hiring Patricia McDonald as the town's new recreation director this spring. But with McDonald's resignation from the job last month, Wilson has now been asked to oversee recreation on an interim basis. The select board voted 5-0 on May 31st to approve a revised agreement between the town and Wilson, making her the interim recreation director. In turn, Donna Fave, Wilson's assistant at the COA, will manage operations at the senior center as interim COA director. The two began their interim roles on June 1st and will remain in them through the end of September. While Wilson's primary focus will be on recreation in the coming months, Sumner said she'll still be involved with the Senior Center and Council on Aging. Wilson said she plans to keep office hours at the Senior Center on afternoons, but that Fave will manage operations day-to-day at the Center. The move follows McDonald's resignation on May 18th, less than three weeks after she began work as Recreation Director. McDonald left Orleans to return to Sandwich, where she had been the town's assistant recreation director. Her last day in Orleans was May 31st. Registration for youth recreation programs open May 30th for residents and will open on June 12th for non-residents. Youth programs include half-day programs at Orleans Elementary and Nauset Regional Middle School, as well as swim lessons, tennis lessons, and girls' lacrosse clinics. 
Registration is open for adult programs, including early bird fitness, round-robin pickleball, and instructional tennis. Beyond summer rec programming, Wilson is also charged with helping map out a plan for future use of the Community Center building at 44 Main Street, commonly referred to as the Old Firehouse. The Orleans Community Partnership has overseen the building for many years through an annual license from the town. Sumner said that agreement is due to expire on June 30th, but the partnership will not be renewing its license. In planning for the building's future, Wilson said the town must be mindful of ongoing activity in the space. Summer concerts are held outside the building on Saturdays, while the community center also houses the Orleans Chamber of Commerce. Sumner said a revised license agreement with the chamber could soon come before the select board for consideration. The Academy Playhouse sits high atop a hill overlooking Orleans Main Street on the route leading to Nauset Beach. Working with the Orleans Community Preservation Committee and the town's historical commission, the Academy's Board of Trustees has secured a $250,000 grant for the first phase of an extensive restoration project. The initial phase involves replacing old damaged clabbards on two sides of the building, along with removing and refurbishing the original windows. Reusing the windows is one way the theater company is maintaining the original look and feel of the venerable old building. An application has been filed for money to refurbish the other two sides of the building and replace a damaged fire escape in phases two and three of the project. The work for the additional two phases will total another $250,000. The structure first saw life as the town hall in 1873, but after Gordon and Betsy Argo arrived in Orleans in the 1940s, the building was destined for a life in show business. Town officials were ready to move their offices just about the time that the Argos were ready to christen the Orleans Arena Theater. The couple established the theater in 1949 as the first summer residence theater in the round in the United States. From 1950 through 1975, the building housed a theater-in-residence where student actors and technicians from George Washington University worked and performed, living in a house up the hill. In 1975, another theatrical couple, John and Elizabeth Kelly, began using the theater for their Academy of Performing Arts classes, and the building began its life as the Academy Playhouse. Beginning in 2013, Various plans for renovations were floated, with one including an addition and an elevator to improve accessibility. That plan proved too costly and was eventually shelved. Along with replacement of the clapboards and refurbishing of windows, the current approach has included classroom renovation and replacement of seats. The three-phased building revitalization should be complete by the theater's 50th anniversary in 2025. For Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn.
This is meteorologist Will David with your weekly weather watch and temperature trend for the Outer Cape. A strong Omega block has brought weather systems to a virtual halt across the nation. The upper low that's been stuck over the Canadian Maritimes and the Gulf of Maine will meander, weaken, and eventually lift out late Saturday night. So Sunday is definitely the pick of the weekend. The fair weather will be brief, lasting through Monday, before a stronger low pressure over the Midwest brings showers and thunderstorms back to the Outer Cape Tuesday and Wednesday. In the longer term, the atmospheric traffic jam should evolve into a more zonal flow, bringing seasonal temperatures back to the Outer Cape by next weekend. And even though it won't be a summer pattern most of us would like to see, it'll certainly be an improvement over this past week. By the way, June 2023 could end up being the second coolest since June 2009, and that was our cloudiest June on record. Elsewhere across the nation, the big story is the wildfire smoke. A hot, dry May has led to a record amount of uncontrolled Canadian wildfires. As of this afternoon, over 12 million acres in all Canadian provinces are burning. And an unusual June weather pattern has allowed the smoke from the wildfires in eastern Canada to spill into the lower 48 from New England to Georgia. Now, because the pattern will be slow to break down, the smoke in varying concentrations will be slow to leave. By the end of the weekend and early next week, a wind shift will allow any leftover smoke to move out of the U.S. But as this happens, some of the smoke will still continue circulating back over the Outer Cape. There's already an air quality alert across the local area today until midnight, and there could be other alerts over the next few days, so be sure to check the air quality index on a daily basis. Otherwise, showers and thunderstorms will be numerous, from Texas to Florida, as well as over the Northern Plains. And finally, let's talk about vitamin D, the sunshine vitamin. When the skin is exposed to sunlight, it manufactures vitamin D. The sun's ultraviolet B rays interact with a protein in our skin and convert that protein into vitamin D3, the active form of vitamin D. Now, just 10 to 15 minutes of sun exposure at this time of the year produces about 1,000 international units of the vitamin. However, all the cloudy, cool weather over the past week has greatly diminished the sun's potential production. Studies do show that vitamin D deficiency can lead to fatigue, mood swings, feelings of hopelessness, and even depression. Now my exclusive WOMR weekend weather forecast for the Outer Cape. This afternoon, mostly cloudy with scattered showers. Highs around 65. Tonight, mostly cloudy with widely scattered showers. Lows around 53. Saturday, a mix of sun and clouds, but still a chance of showers and even a few thunderstorms. Highs around 67. Finally, by Sunday, strong June sunshine. Highs around 72. As always, stay safe and informed by keeping an eye to the sky and an ear to the radio. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody. I'm Weather Will. Do you remember when you fell in love? 
I mean real, honest-to-goodness love, the kind that makes you want to be together, live together, not leave each other's side. I'm not talking about the moment you met, although that's usually a cute story, and I'm not talking about lust, although it often begins that way. The science tells us there are three distinct phases of falling in love. The first, sexual desire, is driven by the levels of testosterone for men and estrogen for women. The second, infatuation, is similar in feeling to the addictive rush from certain drugs or alcohol. The final phase is attachment, which is when you may begin to feel closely bonded and start making long-term plans together. That's what I'm talking about. I've been thinking about all this lately because it's June, one of the most popular months to marry, at least in Western culture. Even I was married in June. My wife chose the date, and because it was my first wedding and her third, I assumed she had all the experience. Also, because the worst weddings I had ever attended were in the suffocating heat and humidity of July and August. But it didn't occur to me that June weddings were a thing dating back thousands of years. For one thing, if a bride married in June, she was more likely to bear her first child in early spring, giving her plenty of time to recover before the fall harvest. For another, there were religious holidays that you needed to avoid. Lent for Christians, Passover and the high holidays for Jews, Ramadan and Muharram for Muslims. June checked all the boxes. Besides, the best chances for good weather and food for a feast were in June. My wife and I met in Cambridge on the afternoon of a Passover Seder for which I had volunteered to make macaroons. She was an old friend of my roommate, but also a famous feminist, author, and activist. Terrified to meet her, I decided to play it nonchalant and stroll into the room, beating a bowl of egg whites with a wire whisk. Most high-powered women would have dismissed me as a busybody. She saw a profile from a dating service. 26-year-old Jewish man, curly hair, likes to cook. We had a thing for each other immediately, stage one, and began an affair, stage two. But there were other people in our lives, and added to the fact that I lived in Boston and she lived on Cape Cod, that she traveled all the time and I worked full-time, the relationship was a lot of fun but not serious. Until the moment I'm talking about. Until the moment we all realize that this person reflects something deep inside ourselves and that we don't want to live without them. It was at a literary party in one of the Provincetown dune shacks. If you've ever been to one of these parties, at least back in the day, they usually revolved around a visiting celebrity writer, almost invariably a man with a recent book of fiction surrounded by a coterie of admirers. The one upsmanship at these parties was fierce. The number of his books, his reviews, and outsized reputation clearly signaled his dominance. Women at these parties were, of course, tolerated, but a woman with more books, better reviews, and a bigger reputation was intolerable. As the red wine flowed, the insults began. I'm sorry, the celebrity writer said, not meaning a word of it, but 
Margaret Atwood is overrated. Toni Morrison is a token. Adrienne Rich is a man-hater. He didn't mention my wife by name. He didn't have to. These women were her colleagues, her contemporaries. I could feel her shifting uncomfortably, just as I could see him staring right at her, making sure he was hitting his mark. My wife stood up, suggested it was probably time to leave, collected her purse, her jacket, picked up her glass of red wine, and on the way out, poured it all over the celebrity writer's lap. Oh, I'm sorry, she said, meeting his gaze, not meaning a word of it. And that's the moment I fell in love, the moment I realized I wanted to hitch my life to this fearless woman's, the moment I realized our souls were somehow attached, the moment I always associated with June. I'm sure you have an equally meaningful story about the moment you fell in love. Don't ever forget it. I'm Ira Wood, and that's my opinion. And that does it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks also to Beth Dunn, Will David, and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program. And thanks to Jacob Greenberg and Henry and Jane Fisher for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. And now stay tuned for Friday Afternoon Jazz. It's Stirred Not Shaken with Hank and Andy on listener-supported Community Radio, WOMR.